your comfort zone grows as you try new things, you know? But the goal is to just expand it, expand it so that you can feel centered in in anything, you know? And that's a beautiful way to live because it, it means you're trusting life. Welcome to Beyond the Fourth Wall. In this podcast, we're investigating how the skills we cultivate as theater artists transfer beyond our industry. I'm Lindy. And I'm Joseph. Each week, I'll be chatting with creatives from many different industries. And every couple of episodes, I'll hop in with Lindy for a conversation connecting the dots and applying what we learn to our everyday lives. We're so glad you're here. Now get ready to go Beyond the Fourth Wall. I'm so thrilled to welcome to the podcast Grammy-nominated artist Surreal M.A. As her bio states, improvisation is not just a technique for her, it's a way of life. She ventured from singing on street corners in Europe to dazzling audiences at the world's most prestigious jazz festivals. She also co-starred with Broadway's Bernadette Peters in a Stephen Sondheim tribute at New York's City Center, which inspired her to dig deeper into Sondheim's repertoire, resulting in her fourth album, Move On, A Sondheim Adventure. Today, we're unpacking that adventure, as well as her incredibly inspiring life and journey. Please welcome Surreal. Surreal M.A., I am so excited to meet you. Welcome to the Lexington Theatre Company, and welcome to Beyond the Fourth Wall. I'm very happy to be here with you. So excited for this conversation today. And I want to tell you how I got to know you and your amazing music, because it's a very special and sort of personal story for me. We've been, you know, isolated in the pandemic here. We're in in Kentucky. And my family and I, we were having a little family dinner and we turned on Spotify to one of our favorite jazz playlist stations. And I remember very distinctly sitting by the fire and one of your songs came on and I sat up and I was like, that's Sondheim, that's Sondheim. And I stood up and I walked over to the the Spotify screen on our television and I was like, she's taking Sondheim and turning it into beautiful jazz music. What? She's a genius. <laughs> and, and I said to my husband, I was like, she has a whole album. She has a whole album of Sondheim music. And so we turned off the playlist and we switched to your album, which is called Move On, A Sondheim Adventure. And I listened to it start to finish. And my jaw was just on the floor. When we got to move on, the song Move On, I started weeping. That song is so, so special to me. It's my favorite show of the Sondheim canon, and I love that song so much, but what you did with it took it to a whole other level, and I turned to my husband and I said, I have to meet her. I'm a musical theater artist by trade, and I grew up sort of fearing and revering Stephen Sondheim all at the same time. (laughs) And I just, I said to my husband, I said, 
I have to meet the woman who took Stephen Sondheim's music and just brought it to a whole new level. Your courage, your bravery, your artistry is so inspiring to me. And I cannot wait to unpack all of this with you. I have so many questions. <laughs> I Right now, I have tears in my eyes because you have no idea. It's, it's very special to me when someone from the th musical theater world validates this record because I'm not from that world. I didn't come from there. And, and my following is from the jazz world. So it's n not a lot of people who were able to hear this record knew the songs where the songs came from and yeah it's it's so fun for me to hear the the reaction of people who know Sondheim who really know these songs inside and out and yeah so thank you thank you so much for telling telling me that Oh my goodness. I, I mean, I just couldn't wait as the album was unfolding song after song. I could not wait to hear what you were going to do with the next one. It was so thrilling. I want to unpack all of that here in just a minute, but I would love for our listeners to get to know you. You grew up in France and your mother is from the Dominican Republic, correct? Yeah. And your dad is French. Is that right? Yeah. And you grew up in the village that Django Reinhardt came from it's, uh, the village where he used to live and where he's now buried he was born in Liberchy in in uh, Belgium but uh, he uh, finished his life in in Samoa the little village it's a 2,000 people village on the outskirts of Paris and uh, and and every year there's a Django Reinhardt festival in his honor and so Django was a gypsy and so gypsies from all across Europe including his direct family come to Samoa, to the little village, in their caravans by hundreds to honor him during the week of the, the festival and just play guitar night and day in the campsites, build a big fire, cook food and dance around. And, and so when I was little, I became friends with the gypsies and that's how I fell in love with their music. I love the first sentence in your biography on your website, which says improvisation is not just a technique for Grammy nominated artist Surreal LeMay. It's a way of life. And do you feel like that is what you gravitated toward immersing yourself in that culture? That's yeah, totally. That's what I connected with because I had, you know, I had heard their music many times and uh, gone to that festival I grew up in a family that loved music. They're not musicians, but my parents love to dance. My mom loves to put salsa and merengue and bachata and, and dance. But when I met the gypsies, when I discovered their culture and their way of life and the way they live every day like it's their last, I, I understood their music much better. And so I fell in love with that improvisation factor that is just all about how... Really, each moment is so important, and the way you make the music is with that same energy and that same um, goal, you know, of honoring the present moment. I love that, honoring the present moment. And that's something that I feel like resonates 
so deeply with you in your music, but also just in the way that your life has played out. You are not afraid to take big risks, to move across oceans, to try new genres, to say, hey, I'm going to tackle Stephen Sondheim's work. I mean, you, I, I've heard you say in previous interviews that you love putting yourself outside of your comfort zone. Does that come as well with that improvisation factor? Because for a lot of people, improvisation in and of itself is out of the comfort zone. That you know, we like to have our our recipe, our directions. This is what we're supposed to do. But you love to live in that improvisational world. Well, I feel like that's how you grow and that's how you get better at improvising is by improvising. Your comfort zone grows as you try new things. You know. And so you, the, the goal is to just expand it, expand it so that you can feel centered and comfortable in, in anything, you know. And, and that's a beautiful way to live because it, it means you're trusting life. I love that. Well, and I, and I love that you t you've talked too about when you play with a band, when you, when you collaborate with other musicians that it's also about that trust and that sometimes I've heard you say you love getting on stage with people you don't know that well and just seeing what happens. Yeah, that's that's a, a beautiful thing about jazz is that th there's a repertoire. There's kind of like a, a language that you go in any country and you can go to a jam session and say, hey, uh, you guys want to play Honeysuckle Rose? Even if you don't speak the same you know, language than them, you guys can create on the spot because we all know the changes of the tune, the skeleton, and we use that as a as a platform to just express ourselves and really connect. And because you you've never played with these people, everyone is all ears and everyone is really listening to each other, and so it creates an, a new version of that song that you've never done before. Well, and speaking of ears, your ear is incredible. And you learn to to play and sing by ear. Am I right on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell us about. So you you're you grew up in France. You're learning by ear. You're sort of learning about music as a way of life, not just as a a separate craft or something that we do on the side, but something that is part of who we are. It's part of our culture. At what point did you start to say, "But I think I might make a career." in this as well I never really thought of it as a career I just thought I want to learn more of this and so it took me to to building a career because in order to learn it you have to practice it and in order to practice it you have to find ways to to get gigs to to find yourself in the studio with other musicians to find yourself in the classroom and And so just by wanting to learn and to, and to grow in, in, that, in that art, um, I found myself making a career out of it. But I never <sighs> thought like, oh, I want to be a, a famous jazz singer and, and make loads of money. <laughs> If I thought that, I probably wouldn't have tackled jazz. <laughs> <laughs> What I love so much... And Surreal, we've been unpacking some of these themes over the last several episodes on this podcast, is that that mindset is what so many of us are striving for. And this idea of it's not about, 
in our American culture here, it feels a lot like we have to sort of make a decision like that, you know, decide what you're going to major in in college or, or choose that path. And we've been having so many great guests in the last episode who, who have found other ways to it. And so it is just literal music to my ears to hear you say, I never really thought about it in terms of a career. I just thought about it in terms of learning the learning and the growth and just making music because it's what speaks to your soul is what has been driving you this whole time. And it carried you all the way here to the States to get your degree from SUNY Purchase. Yeah, because when I f started singing with the Gypsies and I, I was like, wow, I love this music. I want to know more about it and where it comes from. So, so that's when I started to listen to Ella Fitzgerald and, and I was like, okay, I want to go over there and learn all this repertoire. Well, I, I've heard you say that you were the, the only female, the only singer, the only person not from the United States in your program. And having learned everything by ear, and then you were all of a sudden thrown into this very formal music education. Talk about putting yourself out of the comfort zone, right? Yeah, well, it and also because I didn't go to college right after high school, I was the I was the oldest one. And the thing is that I realized once I was there, uh, everyone, a lot of people in America in high school have high school jazz band. So a lot of all my friends in the class knew how to read music. And so the teacher assumed that everyone did. And he'd be like, all right, so if you put a B flat major seven and uh you you make a sharp five it's a I don't even know if what I'm saying makes sense but and I'd be like while everyone were was on track with him I'd be like wait B flat which one is that B flat so do re mi fa sol la si oh, okay B flat is si bemol and then I was like so far behind so at some point I decided okay just listen just focus on your ears and my ears were much faster than my you know my my eyes I guess. And so I spent four years kind of pretending that I could read. Kind of, I could see the little, like, for example, in the sight reading class, I could see if, like, the note was going up or down, and then I would hear the piano player, and I imagine that that's probably the right note, you know, that's what sounds like it would be the right note. I probably made a lot of mistakes, but I passed. And uh, after school, I told my teacher, I told him hey by the way I still don't know how to read music you need to have a beginner's <laughs> class for people who don't know how to read music when they get into college <laughs> the other story that I've heard you tell that I find incredible was about the gig that you had you said it was a drummer's gig so it was you a bassist and a drummer you were doing all the melodies the harmonies making all the chords yourself yeah when you're playing in a band that doesn't have a harmonic instrument like a guitar or a piano it's just bass and drums and not only that but you're playing in a restaurant where people are not there to listen to the music they're kind of doing eating and talking and you have three sets it, it was like a four-hour gig every saturday and so everything was resting on my shoulders, meaning in order to get the people's attention, I have to draw out the chords for them. I have to outline all the chords so that they can hear where we are in the song because with just the bass line, they're not, it's, it's hard to, 
you know, to grab them. And so it was really an incredible learning experience for me because for for three sets every week, I would just... And also I had to sing a lot of songs because every song is pretty short because I'm the only soloist, you know, there's so many bass solos you can have in one set. And so I was really working at outlining all the colors in the chords in every standard that we would play. And that really helped me develop my ear. Okay, so we have we have to talk about the Sondheim album. How did we go from studying jazz at SUNY Purchase to singing with Bernadette Peters in New York for Stephen Sondheim? What was that process? Well, I had been in New York City for a few years, and they were they were uh, looking for jazz singers for this Stephen Sondheim tribute that was gonna be with two Broadway singers and two jazz singers the music of Stephen Sondheim performed by the Winton Marsalis Orchestra. And so jazz at, yeah, jazz at Lincoln Center gave Stephen Sondheim a few names of jazz singers for him to check out. And, and so he picked me. Oh my goodness. But you know what? At that time, I didn't even know who he was. Which I love, which I love. First of all, in France, there's no musical theater. And second of all, we speak French. So we can't really appreciate full we can of course appreciate the music but the lyrics which is a huge part of his music uh we can't you know that's not a it's not really a thing so i and and then growing up in the in the jazz world it it was it was not a thing especially the jazz world was it which is kind of a, a world where lyrics are, are kind of put to the side almost i was in this show and i was learning these new songs and i just couldn't believe the lyrics I had been singing standards for years, and this was a whole nother level. All this richness, this depth in the lyrics that would unfold every single time that I sang the song, I would learn more things about myself. I came to America speaking kind of English, and I learned English through standards, which have a very kind of old school pattern of repeating ideas and very similar and Sondheim just broke all those boundaries. After that show, one of the songs I was singing on that show was Live Alone and Like It. And after that show, I decided to cover that song on one of my, on my next record. And so we did a crazy arrangement of that, that gypsy, gypsy jazz arrangement of Live Alone and Like It. I performed with that band for like five years. We recorded two albums together. And it was a time in my life where I needed a change. I moved from New York City to down to New Orleans. I broke up with a boyfriend who I had been with for a while. I, you know, I changed the chapter with this band that I had been touring with for five years. It was, I just wanted something, to try something else. And I decided to go and look into the Sondheim repertoire to see what other songs I could cover, just as, as an experiment. And I bought the four-volume books of Stephen Sondheim, and I just started reading it like a book, like like a novel, you know. And it's all short stories, basically. His songs have a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so I would read the the songs and put a little mark on the ones that I, I liked the lyrics to, that I could connect to. And I did that for the whole, uh, the whole uh, four volumes. Then with the ones that I had put a little mark, I went online and looked for a version so that I could listen what it sounds like and put a second little mark 
the ones that I like the music to, and that just compiled exactly the, the the 14 songs that are on the record. That was that list. And so I then called a friend of mine, Asaf Gleisner, who has also a foot in the musical theater. He had like a real foot in there and a foot in jazz because I met him at SUNY Purchase College. And I called him and I was like, hey, I have an idea. Are you in? And he was totally in. And so we, then we started collaborating and it was in, really intense for me because, as I said, I had just broken up with a guy. It was one of the biggest heartbreak I ever had in my life. It was really hard. I just moved to a new city. I didn't know anyone. I had I was done with the band I, I was used to playing with for so long. And working on this album just saved me because as I was dissecting the lyrics I was as I was learning every song and writing down the lyrics on paper I was like wait these songs are about me <laughs> I just found myself so much in them on purpose I did not go and re do the research to know which who's the character that's singing this what is he talking about what is the context I didn't want to do that because I wanted to find my own meaning and you know how you say oh she's so brave she tackled Sondheim and did it completely different I got lucky because I didn't know that he was revered like that I didn't I didn't grow up in that world of fearing Sondheim <laughs> yeah I grew up in jazz where you take the standard and you do whatever you want with it and I just applied the same to Sondheim and it's amazing it's amazing. Sondheim on Sondheim was the last main stage or last book show we did right before the pandemic. So we had been immersed in, in Sondheim. Joseph was in it and I directed it. I heard those lyrics in ways I have never heard them before. As well as I was accustomed to those songs and I knew them what felt like pretty well to me, and I heard them, I heard the lyrics, specifically the lyrics, in entirely new ways. And there were certain moments that hit me in ways they've never hit me before. And I think that is just why I was so moved and so amazed. And I've heard you say that, so was Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> he really enjoyed it too, right? He came to my CD release concert at Birdland and then... The year after that, we did another uh, Sondheim week at Birdland, and he came and sat on the front row both times. And and by that time, I was a hardcore fan, you know. <laughs> and I had all I had after I recorded the album, I went in and watched every play, and you know now I know where the songs come from, what it's all about, and and I'm just a super big fan. And to have him there in the front crying and enjoying himself I could see he was enjoying himself he was laughing he was it was really 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 special and people were like weren't you scared that you and I wasn't because I felt like I was presenting something new to him not like trying to do what he has written in the best possible way I was I didn't have anything to compare it to because it was mm. so different yeah, it was really special. I went to his stable. We went to his stable, Asaf and I, after the show. And he took my hand and he cried and he said, 
He said, you made me feel like a composer for the first time. And that was really wild. Wow. I'm getting emotional again. <sighs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Well, and you know what? I think, at least for me, and and I, I don't claim to know what was going through Stephen Sondheim's head, but, you know, he, for, for all of us in the musical theater world, he was such a game changer because he broke the mold and really took us we had been building this beautiful linear storytelling and he said what if we tell musicals backward what if we tell musicals out of order what if we have a concept musical that doesn't really have a theme but it or doesn't really have a plot but it has a central theme he took everything that we had built thus far in our musical theater history and turned it on its ear then seeing you <laughs> taking that and turning it on its ear again. How inspiring that must have been. I know it was inspiring to me. And also what's really special about this kind of music is that the album is one thing, but then live is a completely other thing. And it's even more taking it to the next level. We're stretching out sections. There's improvising going on. And so I think for him to just see a bunch of kids up there on the stage having so much fun with his music. You know, he's the genius at the table and he was asking me all sorts of questions like, so how do they know when to start improvising? And how do they know who's improvising? And and who, how do you, what are these chords that you added there? He was so curious and yeah, it was so cool. And I know you said, you know, in the jazz world, earlier you said the the lyrics can sometimes get put aside and the the music and the improvisation sort of takes the lead but what i love about your album and i i wish i could have seen it live what i love is that the storytelling is so clear it is so clear and so specific and so intentional so is that something that the jazz community was sort of like oh this is interesting this is new this is different yeah, this was definitely new. I mean, that's how I picked the songs, was first the lyrics. And that's how I pick songs in general, because of the fact that I feel free to do whatever I want with the rest. I can do whatever I want with the groove. I can change the time feel. I can change the harmony. I can reharmonize the melody. I can interpret the way I want, but the lyrics are going to stay the same. And and yeah, it was definitely a, a new thing in the jazz world, but... The craziest thing is that a lot of jazz standards come from musicals. So it's something that we've been doing in jazz for a while. It's just that we haven't done it in in a, a really um, cont contemporary uh, repertoire. Uh, and you were nominated for a Grammy for the arrangements for Marry Me a Little. The arrangements of everything, the arrangements are so incredible how was that collaborative effort especially you saying that you're you're you didn't read music you're still sort of a novice at that how is the arranging going by ear and knowing what to do with all of the different instruments well for this album because I had been playing with a band that it was a really set band you know two guitars bass drums and always the same guys and we recorded three albums together and what would kind of gave the theme to a, the album was the band sound, the sound that we created together that was really unique with those two guitars sounding. But for this album, I wanted 
the theme to be Sondheim and I wanted to honor each song in its own story and so each song has a different instrumentation you have songs that go from duo I mean the, the first song actually is just a cappella, it's just voice then there's duos trios quartets all the way to like a full big band with you know four horns and marry me a little is a whole string section so I kind of wanted each song to be like a portrait to have its own color its own place and I even put the songs in an order that tells my story of what I was going through during this breakup and this move and which is why this, the album is called move on because I I was moving on and so the way we wrote the arrangements was a lot of back and forth between Asaf and I and a lot of Asaf translating my ideas in paper you know for the band to to be able to read and produce it and i'd be like on on my bike and and hearing all of a sudden hearing um with so little to be sure of as a samba and just taking my phone and like whatsapping asaf with a voice note asaf I know what to do. You know, something like that. Or or for um, Take Me to the World, I was actually in New Orleans at a, at a second line. Um, and and I just heard it like that. And so a lot of back and forth of ideas like that. Uh, for being alive, that was Asaf's idea. He just started playing the Montuno on the piano, and I was like, hell yes. Then there's ideas for the horns, for example. I record ideas like, you know, and he harmonizes it all and gives it to the horn players. Yeah, it was a whole, uh, a whole adventure. <laughs> Uh, I'm loving every single second of this conversation. Ah, so so you, this collaboration it, is amazing. It's just unbelievable. And it reminds me of something else that I've, I heard you say in another interview about when you're performing live with, with your band that you don't like to have music, like sheet music on the stage. Is, am, I, am I right on that? Yeah. I was watching a recording of a masterclass that you you had taught and you were saying that you didn't want, I, I'm paraphrasing, but you didn't want the players and you to get lost in the sheets. You, wa you wanted them to get lost in the music and like live in the moment, which I think also is a recurring theme for you with with the this improvisational sort of mindset that you approach to all all that you do it's all about living in that moment being present to that moment yeah I mean I'd much rather play songs that everyone knows and we can actually connect on them than to showcase fancy arrangements if we don't know them I would I would like to be able to showcase fancy arrangements and know them all by heart you know so that's what I get my band to do they I'm a, I'm a hard ass like that, but the result is so worth it. And so worth it. I did a lot of uh, vocal competitions, and every time I think every I, I've won a few, and every time that uh, I won, I think this is what saved me: is that the other singers were coming in in this competition with a 
four-page chart to play with the house band that they didn't know. And so when they were performing, they were kind of nervous about making sure the band knows the hits on the on the third part and that they're going to get the outro. And so the band is like looking at the sheets. The band can't connect with the singer. And I just came in. I remember I was like, I'm playing Oye Como Va. Oh, do you have a chart for it? No, it's two chords, A minor, D7. And, and I won because... I was so, we, the band was so happy. They were like, ah, oh, we don't have to read music. We just, and so then they just had to, to have fun, you know, and we were just having fun on the stage. And that's what the people want to see. They want to see people be human and vulnerable and, and, and just express what they're feeling in the moment, not showcase their fancy arrangement that they wrote last week or whatever. Yes, yes. And that is so akin to what we love to do in the theater which is being super present to that scene partner. And yes, we've, yes, we have a script. We've memorized the lines. We've memorized the songs, but we've had so many guests that are actors on this podcast talk about the power of trusting that, that it's all in there and releasing to the moment and being present in the moment. And that is where that beautiful audience to artist connection comes in, which I know is also so important to you. And I, re I remember you telling a story about how at first you were nervous to, I think it was in that same, the gig that was you and the bassist and the drummer, and they asked you to start talking to the audience. And at first you were shy about it, but now you've grown to realize the importance of that connection. Singing came pretty naturally, but talking to the audience did not come that naturally. I had to work on it, and the more I was working on it, the more I realized the benefits of it. And so now I love, I love, you know, talking and receiving the energy of the audience. Uh, you are such an inspiration because I feel like every single thing that we have talked about today, whether it is living improvisation, like making your life feel like you are living in the moment and not afraid to improvise, taking big, bold, creative risks and just jumping in, connecting with your audience, the power of, of storytelling and how we connect as humans. I feel like the way that, not only the way you create your art, but the way that you live your life is something that so many of us are aspiring to. So thank you for just being such a light and and showing us this beautiful way to make art and beautiful way to live. It is so, so cool. I have one final question for you. This is something we ask all of our guests. Looking back on this gorgeous life and career of yours all the way back to learning music in France to... SUNY purchase to the Sondheim album to now your new path in New Orleans. If you had to pick just one thing that you have learned along the way that you think serves you best beyond those footlights, <laughs> beyond the bandstand, as we say in the theater, beyond the fourth wall, what would that one thing be? I mean, we've talked a lot about it, but to be present to accept what is, and to love what is. Gorgeous. I cannot thank you enough for being here. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for that album. In this 
in this isolated uh, year of a pandemic, stumbling upon it with my family by the fireplace was one of my favorite creative moments of this of this pandemic. You've inspired me so much, and uh, I am just so thrilled to get to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Lindy. My pleasure. To find out more about Surreal and her newest album, I'll Be Seeing You, visit surrealmusic.com. To find out more about the Lexington Theatre Company, visit our website, lexingtontheatrecompany.org, and follow us on social media at the Lex Theatre Co. Thank you.